Hello and welcome to Tools in the Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide. You probably know that already, but we're up to episode 161. And can you believe it's taken this long for me to be your host? I'm Matt Campbell, senior editor at Cars Guide. I'm joined by news editor Tom Nguyen. Good day. And for the first time ever, our contributor Stephen Otley is joining us. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Hello. Thankful. I'm so grateful to finally be a tool in the shed. Uh, well, we've always known. I mean, no, we won't go into that. Um, this week, we're beginning to look at uh, a bunch of different stuff. Obviously, we're looking at our big hitting news story of the week. Uh, Hyundai and Kia Utes looking into the crystal ball that Chesto seems to have found and glanced into. We'll also cover off the three cars that we've been driving. Well, actually, it's going to be four cars, but we'll get to that soon. And we'll also check in on the Musk Man, who is now the second most richestest man on the planet. Good for him. And we'll stay tuned for Musk Watch when that comes up. So stay with us. And remember, if you are watching on YouTube to hit subscribe, hit the like button and hit the bell icon to stay up to date with all of our latest videos. First off, guys, let's talk about the Dream Factory, which is what Chesto, Andrew Chesterton, our uh, news contributor, has decided exists. It's a thing. The news, this, <laughs> this news about Kia and Hyundai Utes. Tung, you're the newsman here. Well, the, the king of news, you might say. Yep. Um, what Can you give us a, a brief rundown of what this story is about? And is it actually true? Absolutely. So what in this story, what Chesto is talking about is he's looking forward that over the next couple of years and he's looking at what Toyota have planned for their Hilux GR, right? So he's speculating that it's going to get a V6 diesel engine, same one in the new Land Cruiser 300 series, right? And he's comparing that to some comments that Kia and Hyundai have said about their upcoming Ute, that it's going to be one of the most powerful on the market. And potentially their straight six engine out of the Genesis GV80 could get slotted in there. And Matt, I think you had a chat. You, you did that launch in uh, Korea earlier this year. Did they have yes. any comments on that? Yeah, so the comment at the time was that this um, this engine, this straight six diesel, it's a new engine for the Hyundai group. Um, it could potentially have some commercial application was the wording. Um, so that, uh, in my mind, drew a pretty straight line between maybe um, something else being built on a rear wheel drive to four wheel drive architecture, like a ute or perhaps maybe a van as well. So we know Hyundai has diesel engines in its vans in both Australia and in other markets. Uh, there's only the IMAX and iLoad versions of the van here. Uh, we don't have an, a ute uh, from Hyundai or Kia as yet, as we know. Uh, but looking to this article, it looks like 2023 is going to be that sort of uh, that landing spot for a dual cab ute from these brands. Steve, you you spend a fair bit of time in different cars, in Kias and Hyundais in particular. Um, do you think that they need this sort of vehicle in their lineup to remain competitive or to increase their competitiveness with the likes of Toyota? 100%. I, I think it's the missing piece of their lineup. If you look at both those brands and the growth, particularly Kia, you know, I think, uh, you know, Kia is now up well inside the top 10. You know, it could be a top five brand by the end of next year. Um, but what they're missing is a U. You know, you can't really be um, super competitive in this market without a U. I mean, they, are, they have been, is the impressive thing with her. You know, they've been competitive. They're number three. But I think... You know, put a U in the mix. They've, like you said, they've already got um, 
that commercial heritage with IMAX. So they are, you know, they understand that side of the market. So I think for them to add a ute now, you know, it should propel them in theoretically should propel them into number two spot. You know, obviously I think, I think they're an ambitious company. I think they would like to be number one. You know, that's a big task to get there, but I think a ute is a huge step in that direction. All right. And Tung, do you reckon we could be on the verge of seeing it being Toyota number one, Hyundai number two, Kia number three, or the other way around? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, Hyundai have said in the past that they're, they're gunning for the number two spot. You know, they, they want to take down Mazda. Um, and, you know, uh, Hyundai's, Hyundai Australia's former boss, J.W. Lee, has actually said that their missing ingredient is a ute. Mm-hmm. You know, um, to, to appeal to that side of the market is is going to be a huge advantage to them. And if you just look at the sales charts month in and month out, you know, it's Toyota Hilux, Ford Ranger. They're always vying for, you know, number one and two position. Um, so without a doubt in my mind, I think I think if they had a ute in a stable, uh, both Hyundai and Kia, you know, are going to jump a few spots on the sales charts. Yep, and I think that uh, with increasing competition, the likes of the new GWM Ute or the Great Wall Cannon, as we've come to call it, um, it is basically uh, that part of the market, the budget part of the market is evolving, but also the established part of the market. We keep seeing new additions to uh, Ute ranges that already exist. Um, It seems there's an endless appetite for Utes with the established brands that are already playing there. And I personally think it's the same It's the same answer. This is the missing ingredient. But also we think about the likes of a Ford Ranger and what comes off that, uh, the Everest. And then you've got uh, Triton and Pajero Sport. So it makes sense that you would also see a rugged off-roader um, that could also help propel the brands even further into that spectrum. I mean, we all know you can't get enough SUVs in your lineup right now. Um, we're seeing it with Hyundai and Kia expanding um, in into different segments. Like we've got the upcoming Kia Stonic very soon, and we'll also have the Hyundai Palisade sitting at the very top of that range within the next couple of weeks. So do you boys reckon that there's um, there's definitely need for an SUV spin-off as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's obviously a market there, like you say, the Everest and Pajero Sport and Isuzu, have shown that this market for uh, rugged ute-based SUVs uh, exists and is strong. But the other thing I think is worth mentioning that, you know, the big, a big part of Chesto's, uh, you know, dream factory is, you know, he's talking about the performance variants. And again, I think there's no, I mean, there's no such thing as, as having too many, you know, performance variants in a, in a brand these days. I think, you know, Hyundai's, expanded its end range significantly i think you know toyota's you know it's got gazoo racing now that they're very keen on you know chesto's talking about both these all three of these utes could effectively have you know 600 newton meters of torque you know like Mm. i think we've seen with the ranger raptor that you know look i think we all would have said 10 years ago oh you know 600 newton meter performance utes that cost more than $60,000, $70,000, $60,000, $70,000, you're dreaming. But now it's you're mad not to have one. Exactly. Um, and Tom, what do you think? Uh, where does the Jeep Gladiator with a V8 engine fit into this equation? <laughs> well, I think, sorry, going back to your other point, Matty, I think build, Hyundai and Kia building an SUV off their ute just makes sense. Think about this. If, if 
Hyundai is gunning for that number one position in the market. It needs that ute to take on the Hilux. And if it could build an SUV from that ute, it's all of a sudden it's got a product that will compete potentially against the Toyota Land Cruiser. Mm-hmm. And isn't, you know, Toyota just have that market all to themselves at the moment. It needs more competition. And, you know, Hyundai could build something that gives Toyota a run for their money. Um, and then going to your point, Otley, about more performance utes. Um, at the moment, you look at the Australian ute market and we have, what, two uh, turbo diesel V6s available? Or, you know, the X-Class has now been discontinued. So that just leaves the Amarok. But in the next sort of two to three years, it looks like Toyota is going to bring out a turbo diesel V6. Uh, we talked about Hyundai and Kia with their straight six. Rumor is that the next generation Ford Ranger is going to be using uh, a three liter V6 from uh, an F-150. Um, and presumably uh, Volkswagen, who are building their new Amarok uh, with Ford, are going to get access to that engine as well. So there's going to be you know four utes on the market with uh, six-cylinder diesel performance engines. Um, it's just an exciting time, I think. I think a lot of people, uh, maybe the, the types who would have owned um, SS utes and XR6s and XR8s in the past, um, it's like they've grown up a little bit. It's like they've gotten a little bit older, they've got a family, they're being a bit more responsible, but they still want to have that indulgence. You know, they want a ute because it's practical. It's, you know, now, uh, before they weren't as safe, uh, but now a lot of uh, the new utes are pushing the safety levels right up. And even, like I said, at that lower end of the market, with the even the LDVs, uh, the Sangyongs and the Great Walls of this world, uh, pushing forward with this new safety technology that allows these buyers to have a bit of uh, safety and practicality and thoughtfulness in their vehicle. But also, you know, there is potential for even those brands to push into more desirable models. Like maybe, uh, I guess there's not gonna be the same sort of desire out there for a Sangyong Musso with a body kit, but I think there's definitely appeal in those models uh, at the lower end of the market. But also when it just comes to this competitive segment, this is just one of the most vicious and (laughs) most hard fought segments of the market. And I think that uh, we're not gonna see any end to new models launching. And like you say, Tung, um, just the next generation of utes, it looks like we're seeing um, some stuff coming in 2021, 22, uh, and it's just gonna be more and more exciting and more and more progress in the ute market. Steve, you excited about it? You look excited. Yeah, I, no, I am. Uh, this is just my resting unexcited face. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I've, I've said to people in the past, I think we are entering, you know, the golden age of utes, so to speak, you know, like it's, it's, they were agricultural, you know, unsafe vehicles 15 years ago, but we've seen, like you say, this rapid evolution um, to the point where we're now, you know, there is people are spending six figures on utes, you know, I think there's a high, uh, desirability factor with utes. Utes have become, like you say, they, they, you know, the SS and the um, XR Falcon utes were uh, desirable to a certain group of people. I think the appeal of these dual cab utes is, is much wider than that. You know, there's that, you know, there's those benefits you talk about, you know, there's obviously tax benefits to owning a ute, which makes them more appealing financially, but also just that kind of uh, sense of adventure, I think, that that people at the moment have really bought into, you know, and really embraced that. And I think we see now car companies 
have acknowledged that and are feeding that need and are giving, like I say, you, you look at the, you know, Hyundai and Kia joining in, you have got all these new brands coming in, like you say, like Great Wall. The market is expanding and it, and it is getting more diverse. You know, we'll have, even as these other brands, you know, the existing brands, so to speak, the legacy brands are going to expand upwards. You're going to have other brands come in at the bottom. So there's still going to be, you know, cheap and cheerful utes available to everyone. So it's going to, they're going to, there's an access point for people to get into these cars if they want to and then work their way up. You know, you can work your way up all the way from, you know, I'm sure low 20s to, yeah, like I said, over six figures, depending on just how much you love a ute. And there's going to be something for everyone from like hard working, you know, the, 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 um, rough and ready ones to, yeah, like we say, you know, the next gen Ranger Raptor, like a, a GR Hilux. These are, these are all coming and it's all going to be, I think, pretty exciting the next few years for Ute fans. It's funny you mentioned that because yeah. to me, it almost seems like if you look at the SUV market, you go back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and it was just, you had one thing, it was an SUV. And now that sort of body style has been fractured into, you know, small SUV, light SUV, midsize SUV, premium SUV, large SUV. And I, I wonder if we're going to see a very similar thing happen to Utes as well, where that that segment grows so much that we can start splitting them up into budget uh, Utes, uh, you know, lifestyle Utes, performance Utes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's, um, there's definitely scope for uh, some of these passenger focused um, pickup models that we're seeing yeah. uh, mooted for different markets around the world. Um, obviously, in markets like South America, this is already a thing. You know, there are uh, two wheel drive, single cab, pickup body style, small utes, a la the uh, Subaru Brumby of the yeah. old days, which we all love. Um, and Proton Jumbuck, of course, we can't forget that. Um, but it's there is definitely scope for different um, players in different parts of the market that maybe aren't just going to be playing against the Hilux and Ranger, they're going to split things up a bit. Well, I think it's interesting. You see something like, you know, as we're talking about Hyundai, you know, the Santa Cruz is a car I'm sure we've mm-hmm. talked about many times and it is a different kind of ute. And I think, you know, Hyundai's Australia has not necessarily made its position clear, but we have seen in the past their ability to, to get cars like the Palisade that were going to be originally left-hand drive come here. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen in the past is it actually only takes one model to be a hit and then the copycats come. You know, I think the the X6 is a great example of like, you know, I think the most common thing all journalists wrote about it was, <laughs> you know, it became a cliche, it was the answer to a question nobody asked, but th- th- no one really cares. Car companies don't care about the, about the question if the answer is they sell more cars. Yeah. So, you know, if something like a Santa Cruz comes and is a hit because people want that crossover between you know, compact SUV and Ute again for that kind of, even if it's a, even if it's just the the idea of, of adventure, you know, the idea of uh, freedom and and fun that you that you have, but in a more, uh, you know, passenger car like driving experience, you know, the floodgates potentially open. You know, that's I guess a bit more crystal ball gazing than, <laughs> I you know I haven't borrowed Chesto's one, but you know it's it's. There is huge potential there. If, like, say, if 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 someone gets it right and someone cracks the code, um, it, there's there's huge potential. Obviously, it goes the other way where you know Land Rover decides to build a convertible Evoque and no one <laughs> copies them. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think I think there is there is 
as as you mentioned, there's potential for the mag the market to fragment even more because we, we've seen it with we've seen it with SUVs. So why not an SUV Ute segment in the future? Yeah. 100%. Special shout out to Ford there. We know that they're working on uh, a car slash SUV based Ute. I think the code name might be Maverick, uh, built on the same platform as the Focus and uh, New Generation Escape. So, you know, maybe Ford will beat uh, Hyundai to market in Australia and, and come out with uh, that sort of crossover Ute uh, first. I believe we've covered that before, so uh, make sure you check the Cars Guide site. You might find some info there on that. But this actually um, gives us a nice segue into our what's been in our garage uh, this this week. Because uh, Steve, you were mentioning about how um, shapes are shifting; things are not what they used to be. And you've been spending a bit of time in a car that, well, there's two different cars you've been spending time in. But yeah. The first one. Um, isn't necessarily an SUV, it's not a hatchback, it's not a sedan, but it clearly draws some cues from each of those different parts of the styling market. Tell us what you've yeah. been in. So I have been driving recently, I drove the Jaguar I-Pace again, obviously I drove it a few years ago, but hadn't been in it in a while and it was an opportunity to revisit it. And yeah, it's an interesting vehicle, you know, because I don't <laughs> really, yeah, it's not, a, it's not an SUV as such, it's not a passenger car it's not a sports car it's, it is it is i guess the very definition of a crossover you know which is not a phrase we like to use in australia but you know it, it does blur many lines in terms of what it is um but actually you know just to just to jump forward you know what's interesting about it is i was also driving the jaguar f-pace svr which is very much an suv and that's actually the interesting thing about them is they're they're from the same car company, but they're almost polar opposites in the sense that, you know, the F-Pace is very much a Jaguar take on an SUV because it is a cabriolet design. It's got that long bonnet, you know, looks fast standing still. The I-Pace, it's, just, it's such a it's such an interesting look. I actually was have not been a fan of it, to be totally honest, until this time. I, I you know, I just drove, a, you know, an HSE, a higher spec version, uh, and the particular trim that it was in, it was in a sort of a that bright, I think we've got a photo of it. It's that sort of a bright red, almost orangey red color with black accents. And it actually really set off the shape. And that's what I, that sort of made me think. I actually like the look of it more now. I kind of under, almost understand the look of it more, like the way it is, because it is totally different from any Jaguar because they had the freedom in designing an electric car to not make it cabrier wood. It doesn't have a big engine under the bonnet. It's, it's got electric motors. So they, they were able to do something totally different, which to me, uh, I didn't like at first because it is, it felt a little bit like being different for the sake of being different, you know, like, oh, we don't have to have a long bonnet like we've always had on all these cars, yeah. so let's make it different. It's like, you know, there's a reason why, you know, Coca-Cola has variants of red and white on its cans, right? It, 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 it's, a, it's an iconic um, look. And so for Jaguar to sort of abandon it, it does take some getting used to well, I think what the point that I'm getting that you're trying to make is that it doesn't necessarily look like a Jaguar. And I think you can yeah. level that at a lot of electric cars out there. They don't necessarily look like the brand that they come from. Like, you, you know, if if you saw a Audi e-tron without Audi badges on it, if it was just the silhouette of the car, you might not be able to pick it as an Audi. Um, yeah. And the same for a Mercedes uh, EQC. Um, I think that there is a level of uh, generic um, 
but also polarizing design that comes with the new landscape of electric cars because they have to stand out. They have to be different to what we expect and what we know. And that's well, why they work, but don't work. Why don't it? Do, do they, do they have to be different? This is actually my conundrum with electric cars. And I've asked many a car designer about this. I remember, I remember talking to Mike Simco about this. Do they have to be different? Why do they have to be different? Is there is a danger, you know, like we see these, well, not everyone sees movies. I know you don't watch movies, Matt, but <laughs> watch movies. you know, you see movies set in the future where we're driving these crazy futuristic pods and, you know, like sleek looking things. And, you know, there's a reason why they think cars are going to look like that in 50 or 100 years. There's an evolution to get there. We can't just make, to make such a huge jump, uh, you know, you, you do risk alienating your buyers, you know, your mm-hmm. traditional buyers that you, because you, you're trying to, con- I would think most of these car companies like Audi, for example, and Jaguar are trying to convince existing Jaguar owners to make the switch to an electric car. Like then, and you have to assume that if someone has bought an Audi or a Mercedes Benz or a Jaguar, they probably like Mercedes Benz, Audis and Jaguars. And so they don't want something completely different, but, you know, I think designers have been given creative freedom, like, you know, that was a bit sort of unleashed, so to speak, after, you know, decades of having to do the same thing with the same basic proportions. And they're just like, woohoo, let's just go crazy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Tom, you got any thoughts? Uh, I do. I, to, to Otley's point, I also think it has to do with crash safety as well. You can't just, you know, with an electric car, you've got the battery pack on the floor. You can make it look however you want it to look. But uh, the way that we test uh, car safety these days, you know, we want to have crumple zones at the front, which means a longer bonnet or at least some sort of protection at the front there. Um, you know, we want to have, you know, the strong uh, passenger cell as well. It ends up, you know, looking more like a regular car than not, you know. Um, but I'm interested to know, uh, oddly, uh, you know, the iPACE is all electric. Uh, how did you go with charging the car? Did you run into any trouble uh, with a flat battery? No, to be honest, uh, yeah, I actually didn't charge it. I drove it for a week. You know, I didn't do any. I didn't do any long trips. To be fair, but you know, I did. I did my regular weekly driving. You know, I, I picked it up and had about four hundred k's of range on it. I took it back and it had uh, still had around two hundred. And I, you know, the interesting thing is you can you can tangibly see because you know we're coming into summer. You know, that first hot weather, you can see as you turn the air conditioning up. Down goes the range. Yeah. So it's 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 funny like that. And, of course, it's a Jaguar and only the British can design cars with fully glass roofs thinking there's no such thing as the sun. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's, it is funny. But, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't – I actually did try to charge it. And the funny one is I did try to charge it at a local shopping centre that does have free uh, electric charging. And I did end up in some link of a race, obviously not an actual race, Car's got his safety first, but you know I was following this Tesla through the car park, trying to find the fully signposted electric charging. And of course, I get there and it's um, you know only half a dozen spots, and four of them have got Teslas in them already. So and the other two were taken with I think a Nissan and a and actually a BMW uh, 330e, which was interesting yeah. to see that actually out on the road. But um, yeah. someone's bought one. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I, I personally don't have the issue with the whole concept of range anxiety because I just think it's a mindset change. If, if I bought one, for example, I would put a charging box in my garage mm. and charge it up there every night. And it's a bit, you know, like it is it is different. I think it's going to take 
a lot of people some time to adapt to the uh, philosophical change of electric cars. But, you know, let's be honest, if, 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 it, if all three of us could have a, um, a petrol Bowser in our, in our driveway that we could get cheap fuel in, would we care what <laughs> fuel economy any of our cars did? Like, we'd all be driving V8s, right? Yeah. Like, you just, you just top it up, right? You, it's like you're plugging your, you know, it's interesting we see it with mobile phones, you know, like the modern, you know, I remember my first mobile phone, not to date myself, it was like a Nokia 3210, right? And it, you charged it every couple of days um, yeah. because it wasn't trying to do that much. Now mm-hmm. modern smartphones are little computers and you've got to charge them every night. And I think we've all got into the, or sometimes, you know, during the day, you know, I think we've, um, and we've all adapted to that. Like, you know, so I think same with electric cars is you kind of just, if you keep them topped up, there's no real, uh, that, that whole range anxiety thing becomes less of an issue, you know, unless yeah. you're, unless you're commuting across the Nullarbor or something, in which case you probably shouldn't buy an electric car. (laughs) (laughs) I always say that um, inductive charging will be the game changer for a lot of people because it's that one less thing you have to worry about when you get home. If it's raining, you've got the shopping, you've got the kids, everybody needs to get inside, whatever it may be. There's always going to be an argument that just driving over a pad that sends power up to the receiver is going to be the easiest outcome for a lot of people. It might not be as effective in terms of the getting the power up and it might be slower, but once it's here, that sort of technology will change the game for a lot of people who are considering electric cars, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Uh, you know, and not to monopolise the conversation and talk about nothing but Jaguars, but I, I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition because I had the F-Pace SBR just after it. And, you know, on, on paper, they're actually relatively similar. The, you know, the I-Pace has three, roughly 300 kilowatts. The F-Pace has 400. But the I-Pace has 696 newton metres of torque. The F-Pace SBR has 680. Uh, and the I-Pace will do 0 to 104.8. The SBR will do it in 4.3. And they both cost roughly $140,000. Right. Like it's a, it's, it's fascinating to me how like they're different in every single way and yet so basically close. do the same thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's, close. It's, yeah. I, I should point out the, obviously the I-Pace uses no petrol and the uh, F-Pace uses uh, 11.6, 11.7 <laughs> per hundred. So uh, yes. on, on a good day, um, if <laughs> which to be honest, you can't really have a light foot in that car because it sounds so good. I, I mean, if there's a better sounding car on the market, I haven't heard it. It's just yeah. that that V8 is is ridiculous. So, I actually, I, I, you know, I think we are living. I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on this. We're living in an interesting time. Like it, we are living at that crossover point between, you know, internal combustion and electrification. We are luckily on that point where I guess you know, a hundred hundred odd years ago, people were sort of switching from horse and buggy to cars almost, you know, like it's a, it's a, you know, a fundamental shift in the way we are going to move around in the future. And I think um, just to your point, the fact that we can have big V8 engines like that and also have electric cars from the same brand, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be around for long. This situation is not going to last because V8 engines will be out of existence uh, in their current form as we know them. 
without electrification, um, yep. that's they're gone. But you can you yeah. can set your watch to that. Uh, but electrification is just going to keep ramping up and ramping up, and we're going to see more and more electric cars. Um, and it's just it's it, like you say, a really interesting point in time. We might move on to yep. Tung's car in the garage. It's not the one he's got behind him on the screen there, but no. it is one that you're going to see on your screen in a moment. Tung, tell us what you've been in. I, well, I've only picked it up. I've only had it for two days, but two days ago, I picked up a Skoda Kodiak RS. Uh, so it is their sort of large SUV, the performance orientated large SUV. Um, and I guess the interesting thing about that is it uses a diesel engine uh, for its performance. Uh, so two liter uh, turbo diesel, four cylinder engine with 176 kilowatts and 500 newton meters of torque. Um, and it's, you know, I think it makes sense. I think, I think a, a performance diesel SUV, it, it just makes sense. You know, you've got the low down torque, it's punchy, it's quick off the line. Uh, you know, it moves, you know, it can move a fair bit of mass, uh, and it seats seven people comfortably. Um, yeah. and I, you know, I don't think from memory, the last sort of performance diesel SUV that we, we sort of saw hit the mainstream was the last generation Audi SQ5. Um, which is just making a return in showrooms, I think, this month. But um, no, it's been it's been an exciting few days with the Cody Kodiak RS. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And so um, you also with diesel, you get the added benefit or the added, I guess, perception that it's going to be better on fuel. Um, yep. you, you probably haven't done a test if you only had it for a couple of days, but in in recent tests that we've done, it's performed pretty well in terms of fuel consumption. So there is a definite benefit to right. diesel as part of a family SUV that also has the fun factor that a lot of yep. people want. Um, I, I, I will. I do also want to point out the. Uh, I think they call it dynamic sound boost. They put oh, yeah. into that car, uh, where it just pipes in sort of engine and exhaust noise. It actually makes it sound like it's a V8 or something from the cabin. Um, yep. You know, on the one hand, I think, man, this is really cool that it sounds like this, and then on the other hand, it's like. This is so fake, yeah. and I don't know what to make of it. What do you guys think of fake engine noise? Funnily enough, uh, Mal and I were standing outside his house the other day, and he has a neighbour that has a Kodiak RS, and it actually sounds good on the outside too. Right. So it's, it is, um, I guess it's a, an amplification of um, some sort of sound element that there is there. I like it. I, I There's ones that I don't like, like in a... Um, in the Renault Clio RS, the old one, <laughs> the sound monitor thing where you could change it to sound like a Jetson style buggy or yeah, well, like a motorcycle or whatever you want. Like that's no, silly, but you know, terrible. I think that um, there's definitely, uh, this is where it's going to go. If we're looking at electrification, we're going to see new uh, ways that people will want to experience sound in cars because in electric cars, all you get is that, that were of the motors and that's pretty and the wind rushing past and that's about it so yeah there's definitely something to it i reckon steve yeah look I, yeah i mean i'd love to be a purist but i think the reality is yeah like i said that's the way that the world is moving you know for, you know we want more efficient engines and and noise is actually a lack of efficiency right it's wasted energy so i'm kind of of the sort of the um you know, the, the, the sausage mentality. Don't really tell me how it's made. Like if it just sounds good, it sounds good, right? Yeah, like okay. if it's a, I think, I mean, I think the Audi 
RS3 a few years ago introduced that technology. But, you know, and there's sort of a, a sense of like, oh, no, how could you do it? It's the five, it's the five cylinder. It's such a classic engine. But then you drive it and it sounds good. And you're just like, well, okay, well, it sounds good. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, you know, I get that it's fake, but or, or, a, or a, you know, like say a modified or an amplified version of what's really being made. But it's like, as long as it sounds good through my ears, then I'm, I'm happy. Yep, fair enough. And speaking of sounding good, I'll let you know what I've been driving uh, this week. Ram 1500 Warlock. Uh, so the Warlock version is a 5.7 litre V8 petrol engine, 291 kilowatts, 556 newton metres. Selectable four-wheel drive. Um, no lost energy there, Steve. It's all, it's all, there's all noise and all sound and all power. It's a, it's a real powerhouse of a thing. Um, to give you an idea of the point of why I had this Ram was to help my friends move their tiny house. So I've got a couple of friends, Dion and Marine, who have built this tiny house um, and they needed it moved from one plot of land to another plot of land. It was a very long drive, but this tiny house, the trailer length is nine meters. The height is 4.2 meters. So total, I had nearly 16 meters of length to consider. Plus the trailer weighed 3,200 kilos. And the actual RAM itself weighs 2,630 kilos without any occupants. So we're looking at a pretty big mass uh, that I was managing to move. Um, thankfully, the RAM did it really well. Um, the petrol engine, uh, I, I personally, if I was buying a RAM, I'd be looking at the diesel um, if I could. Um, I just think diesel offers that effortlessness um, and the, you don't need to rev it as much and you don't feel like you're straining it as much. Also, you're going to see a fuel use benefit. So uh, we saw when we were towing um, as part of that loop, it was up around 19 litres per 100 k's. Um, whereas in regular driving, it's, you know, more freeway stuff around 13 litres per 100, which I think is actually not too bad considering the size of that vehicle and also the fact that it's uh, it's made for work, it's set up to do a hard job. Um, turning circle uh, with a trailer on the back of it was a difficult situation to take care of, but um, we spent about an hour trying to reverse the tiny house into the spot that it needed to go in. So uh, thank you to Ram for giving us the, the thing to, to do it with, because it was a bit of fun. Um, and I hope you might've seen uh, some stuff on our uh, Cars Guide Instagram. If you haven't, uh, make sure you check it out. There's a bunch of stuff there. You can see the tiny house build if that's what interests you as well. Now, boys, it's time to get on to some feedback from last week's episode. Um, this was about new cars making their mark. Actually, it was a story by you, Steve. Um, the uh, Celtos and Venue and a few others that were making their mark in the new car market in Australia. Um, so in this segment, we're just going to go through some of the feedback on the podcast, which was addressing some of those uh, stories in, in that uh, podcast. So um, a lot of it was about Dave Morley being on on the show. So, um, were, pe were people questioning why Ned Kelly was on a podcast? <laughs> He's got quite the beard. Uh, he has. It's it's quite impressive. Um, uh, so there was. I'll just run through a few of them. So David Burt said, "Morley respect." And then he went on to say, uh, state government and EV taxes, what would be useful is an overall strategy to assist with the transition, I mean, from petrol to EV. I then think taxation to fund infrastructure approach would be more palatable. I think most of us would probably agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, no, I mean, look, it's a complex issue, but yeah. <laughs> generally, generally. Um, 
Then uh, Sukhoi Romantic said, uh, great to see Dave Morley here. I've been reading and enjoying his takes since I was 13 in 2000. So wow. good on you, Sukhoi. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I believe I believe Dave did actually go to school with Ned Kelly. He is that old. <laughs> oh, Harsh. Um, don't worry, he doesn't. Don't worry, he doesn't watch podcasts. I'm sure. We'll, we'll get onto his age. There's a little bit more on his on his age soon. Um, now, Dukulk uh, or Dukulke, as Richard calls him, um, he was uh, calling out the Celtos. Now, he's not a huge fan of the Celtos, unlike probably all of us. He says, "I don't get the popularity of the Celtos, which is the black sheep in Kia's design. Even the Picanto GT looks better. Celtos looks awfully cheap." only starts looking okay in high specs like the upcoming black edition. Now, Tung, uh, yes. he said, by the way, surprised that you didn't cover my story on Celtos black edition. If you haven't well, noticed, you have my spy shots in your mailbox. <laughs> if you have, it must mean you guys are driving it on Sydney streets that are under embargo to publish. So if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see the uh, black edition uh, Kia Seltos on your screen. Quote, unquote, black edition. Uh, to cook, we did get your photos. Thank you so much for sending them in. Um, incredibly generous of you. Uh, once I had those photos in hand, I did get in contact with Kia uh, to get to the bottom of that story. Um, and as I'm sure you know, uh, last year, Kia uh, rolled out a Sorrento black edition. Um, so it kind of makes sense that they might do a Seltos Black Edition this year. Uh, the official word from Kia is that no, they are not doing a Black Edition. They have no plans to do a Black Edition. And the car that you have photographed and that everyone else will see on their screen is actually uh, an aftermarket special. Someone must have uh, gone out and bought a top of the line Seltos GT, GT line. Uh, and then added their own sort of black wheels, blacked out the grill, uh, and made their you know added their own unique badges uh, to build their own Seltos uh, Black Edition. So that's good on the, them. Yeah, that's the story with that one. Dedication, yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Australia's uh, biggest Seltos uh, fan, I imagine. But uh, <laughs> if if you listen to the podcast or if you know the owner of that car, you know, tell them to to get in touch. We'd yeah, love to know love, more. <laughs> we'd love to know more, hundred percent. I actually um, tend to agree um, on some elements of DeCook's criticism of Seltos. I think in the lower grades, well, the S model with the plastic wheel covers looks a bit cheap, um, but you don't see many with those plastic wheel covers still intact. I think the dealers tack on a set of alloys, pretty cheap. Um, but also the halogen lights, um, the smoky look halogen headlights just look rubbish um, for a car that came out in was it twenty twenty. Uh, it's it's looking old already. Uh, yeah, looks yeah. like a five-year-old yeah, car. Oh, I hate them, man. I hate them so oh, much. Wait. I, <laughs> I, I think we all know that for now. <laughs> uh, okay, and then next in the feedback, and probably last, we'll, we'll wrap it up after this, there was Senior Bob or Senior Bob. I'm not really sure uh, which one he uh, prefers, but he, um, he thought he'd have a crack at almost everyone on the podcast except Morley. Um, <laughs> He said, James, I love your work, but better jokes, please. Because <laughs> at the end, James always has a joke and obviously Senior Bob didn't love it. Um, he also went on to say that the venue is so ugly, it looks like a 25-year-old Santa Fe. Might be the camera angle because James said it looked great and I respect it. Thanks the producer for putting the name tags on, by the way. Then he said, David Morley, love the guy who reviewed Captain Cook's first car. So, <laughs> uh, that's, that's that's harsh. I would never say anything like that. That's ridiculous. I know. Um, to Morley. He's a legend. 
And then he said, BMW grill is stupid. Morley is great. <laughs> and then he said, what is it with these young fellows having a sanctimonious attitude? Here's another one. Mal. So Mal being referred to as a young fellow, I'm sure I appreciate that. Uh, Mal, who couldn't help himself having a dig at Americans and the Corvette. Why? It just upsets viewers and turns them against the channel. The Corvette is a sports car. Bring on any sports car in the price segment or plus 20% and take, test it on a track beside a C8 or even a C7. Take the Fiesta ST if you want, Mal, but go to a real track like PI, SMSP, not a Mickey Mouse track like WP. I'm sure everyone knows what all those names stand for. <laughs> that I've lapped at 101.57 would make a good show. So thanks, Senior Bob, for your backhanded compliments and comments there. We love the feedback, so be sure to give us more in the comments section below. But now it's time for Musk Watch. So, Mr. Musk, we know he's quite the tweet. He loves the Twitter. And this week he tweeted, at the Babylon Bee is savage. Now, Steve, what's the Babylon Bee? Uh, in a nutshell, it is, think of it as a Batuta advocate for conservative Christians. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, it's, uh, it describes itself as fake news you can trust. Um, so, yeah, the Batuta advocate, American conservative Christian. So that gives you an idea of what sort of people they're talking to. Um, Musk mentioning them probably just net them a billion new views, which is pretty good for them. Um, and uh, at Rationale Etienne, whose Twitter name is the Pope of Muscanity, um, called out a particular article equating Elon to being the Noah of our times. Uh, in that he'll be summoning two of all the animals onto his ship uh, on its way to Mars, probably escaping the flood of whatever's happening in America at the moment. So uh, an interesting tweet from Mr. Musk, uh, but amazingly, the CEO of the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon, reached out to Elon after that tweet and said, want to buy it? So <laughs> everything's for sale. Um, good Obviously. Obviously not making that much money then, no. doing uh, a satirical a Christian uh, website. Um, <laughs> Presumably not. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. It shows, uh, I'm sure Musk would love being compared to biblical figures, um, given oh, that yeah. he is effectively a cult leader now. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a, isn't it a bit of a, it's a bit of a quitter's attitude, isn't it? Isn't the whole point of his electric cars that he's going to save the planet? So like, why is he, I don't understand why he's trying to colonise Mars. I mean, apart from the fact that obviously it's there and he wants to do that. I mean, sure, it seems like he's, uh, what, Tesla's not good enough to save the world? Well, I think saving Earth is one thing, but being the president of a whole new planet is a different story. <laughs> so um, that's obviously the end game. Um, that's what I'm seeing anyway. Uh, now, Perfectly logical. Also on Twitter, uh, there was some news going on about uh, Elon's partner Grimes, um, the music artist Grimes, um, who lives in California but somehow managed to secure a ninety thousand Canadian dollar art subsidy. Um, that seems a bit weird. She doesn't really need the money theoretically, unless Elon keeps all his cash to himself. Uh, but yeah, according to reports, Elon is now the second richest person on Earth. Um, and he'll soon be one of the richest on Mars. 
uh, or probably the richest on Mars, unless um, Jeff Bezos decides to join him on Mars as well. Which I wouldn't um, rule out. No, I wouldn't either. He uh, loves maybe, space travel. Maybe Jeff's thinking, well, uh, I'm not that keen on Mars. I'll go for Saturn or Uranus. Um, <laughs> according to the reports, Musk overtook Bill Gates on the richest list with his net worth jumping by a massive 7.2 billion US dollars. That's 9.77 billion Aussie dollars on Monday this week, just one day. Uh, his new total net worth is said to be 127.9 billion US or 175 billion Aussie, which is crazy money. Um, but that's not bad for a 49 year old who seems to be obsessed with smoking weed and making nerd jokes. Um, also, uh, his Tesla stock, the reason he's become so much richer, um, that's because Tesla stock will now trade on the S&P 500, um, which is a pretty big deal for those in the share market. I'm not, I'm not an investment advisor, so I can't give you any information on what you should or shouldn't do, but I wouldn't be buying Tesla shares. Uh, what's the most amazing part of this whole situation, though, is Tesla, or Musk, I should say, uh, started 2020 at position 35 on the rich list. And now he's at number two. So over the worst year in recorded humanity in terms of what's been going on, it's been a pretty rubbish year by all counts. Uh, he's, uh, his worth has risen by $100 billion on the back of share market love for the brand. Do you guys think of uh, Tesla as a, a go-to buy when you, when you think share market? Uh, my financial literacy is less than zero. So I will pass on this question because no one should be taking financial advice from me. <laughs> Steve, uh, you're rolling in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although my, my, my portfolio. Uh, you know, this is the thing. I don't understand. This is one of those things where I don't just fundamentally don't understand the stock market. It's like, you know, because you know, I'm looking at it from the automotive point of view and sort of curious as to like why a company that really has struggled to make a profit uh, with with a monopoly on the market is so valuable when all these existing, you know, legacy manufacturers are going to have competitor cars, you know, in the next... I've said for a while, I, I just... I don't... Obviously, the share price is going to help, but it's hard to imagine Tesla being a long-term car company to me, like just, just purely from a car company point of view, unless there's other things that can prop it up. Like, I just... I, I don't get it. Like I, I just, think it's it's become a it's become a it's become a stock market trend. Like it's traded as a commodity rather than a car company. It's a tech no, stock. It is a tech stock. It's not just a car company. I think that's the one thing that people um, assume that it is just a car company. But it also is a data company first and foremost, and also has a market strategy where it sells carbon credits to other brands so that they can escape uh, being penalized in certain yes. markets. And that is where a lot of the money that they make comes from. Um, but also it is obviously the share market. Now, speaking of the share price, um, this week we've hit $574. To give you an idea of what that means, last week it was trading at a pretty high high of $486. And this is after they split the shares so that you could have more shares on the market. They were getting up around $2,000 before they did that. So these shares are going crazy. Um, and if you have enough money to buy Tesla shares, well, good on you. Because um, 574 bucks for one share, that's crazy. 
Anyway, um, that's the end of the show for this week. We've reached the finish lines. Thank you, Steve, your first time on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. And Tom, as always, great to see you and great to have you on board. Fantastic. Thank you. And thanks also to our producer, Mr. Pritchard, who this week's decided to forego clothes altogether um, and is simply wearing a layer of body paint and it's a beautiful yellow tinge um, and we couldn't do it without his nagging. So let us know your thoughts in the comments section below. You can find us on Cars Guide on Facebook. If you look for us there, you'll also find us on Instagram. You can email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or any of the other podcast apps, then please be sure to leave us a review and let us know how you think we're doing. You can also watch us on YouTube, as I've said. And if you are already, make sure you hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our latest content and hit the bell icon, which will keep you notified of new stuff. Now, there's no joke this week because I honestly don't think I could cop the hate from Senior Bob in the comments below. <laughs> Bye.